The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm excited to bring our guest to you today. Her name is Judith Schwartz. She is a journalist whose recent work looks at soil as a hub for multiple environmental, economic, and social challenges and solutions. She writes on this theme for numerous publications. She speaks around the country. In 2013, she wrote a book titled Cows Save the Planet, which was awarded a Nautilus Book Award Silver Prize for sustainability. She is among the book list's top 10 books on sustainability in 2014. She is a graduate of the Columbia Journalism School and Brown University. She holds a degree in counseling psychology, which I'm sure comes in helpful. She is based in Vermont. And her latest book, which I have in my hands here in the studio, is titled Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, Building Soil, Restoring Land, and Working with the Water Cycle for a Cooler, Wetter Planet. Judith, welcome. Thanks so much. Well, I'm really curious to know how you became interested in these issues of soil and water and climate. Well, it's interesting that I came from a totally different direction. And what happened was when I had some slow time, as many freelance writer, editor types do, I started asking questions and just became really struck by the disconnect between our economic model and nature. Like, this didn't make any sense. So I started writing about economics. I asked questions about wealth. Is the GDP the best measure for prosperity? And what is wealth? And ultimately, that led me to soil. It's because great. what is produced through the land really is our wealth. Yeah. I know I always talk about health being our wealth, and it's not enough to just look at food. We have to look at how it's produced. And now with climate change, and I, I think this decade, 2020, brand new start of a decade, I think that we have 10 years where we really need to get serious about making some of these changes. And I love that you recognize the disconnect between the economic models that drive our country and nature. Yeah, well, I'll just let you know that you are not alone in thinking that this is a very special decade with a lot of things to be concerned about. Maybe that's even putting it mildly, but also opportunities. So one thing I want to mention is because I don't think many people know about this is that the United Nations has declared 2021 to 2030 to be the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. And they're thinking global mass movement. And this is right up my alley because the book that I just finished is about the global ecosystem restoration movement. So moving from a book on soil to a book on water, looking at the whole ecological system, it made sense to go there because water It does not appear or is not purified in isolation, just as it's connected to soil. You can think about 
soil as our water infrastructure. So nothing is in isolation. And by working in whole systems and working in a particular landscape, incredible difference that can be made by restoring that landscape is unbelievable. And how many of our challenges can be addressed. And one thing that's so all of this, both the soil and the water book, are very much about climate. And because of my journalistic background, or maybe actually more because of my counseling background, I ask a lot of questions and try to step out of the typical way that we frame our conversations. So if you look at the question of climate and concern about climate change, you know, we all get very immediately leap to CO2, immediately. That's what has framed our conversation. But if you step back a bit and ask, how does our planet manage heat? Well, most of it has to do with the water cycle. Hmm. One colleague of mine, Walter Yenna from Australia, he has done a lot of work in this and says that 95% of the heat dynamics of the blue planet are determined by water-based processes. You know, and once you start to think about it, it absolutely makes sense because water conveys heat energy in all of the ways that it works. And so the ecosystem thing is that another view on climate as people are very concerned and, you know, what do we do? Governments won't do the right thing is also to, to take a step back and understand that we have had a, huge missed opportunities because we have underestimated or failed to really talk about the role of healthy ecosystems to climate regulation. So putting these two things together, we have water driving climate, but what determines how water moves, how it works, is the vitality and integrity of a given ecosystem. Does that make sense? I piled a lot on there. No, absolutely. I think that from my perspective, I only have heard conversations about climate change with regard to CO2. And quite frankly, I'm a little confused about how it all works. I really don't ever hear water in the conversation about climate change. But there was one chapter in this book that really held me, well, there were two chapters that really spoke to me, I think. One of them had to do with the desert, dew in the desert. And I was glued to the page because I had never heard a conversation at a conference or certainly not at my nutrition and health and climate conferences that I go to about the use of dew and condensation and how much water was being collected simply through dew and through the wise treatment of permaculture and buildings that were able to capture that dew and how that was actually mimicking what you saw certain beetles doing. So let's talk about that. Right, yes. Yeah, so this was an incredible thing that I just happened to meet at a conference, a woman who does this. 
I told her I was working on a book on water, and she said, oh, well, let me tell you about our place. So this woman, Catherine Otmers, with her husband, Marcus, had set up shop in far west Texas, where it's really, really, really dry. It's right near Big Bend National Park. Mm-hmm. So they, I guess many people, I didn't really know about this community, but are buying degraded land to restore it because healthy land is really expensive. So you go places where no one wants to be and you work to restore these desert landscapes. So I guess they're part of a community there of people doing that. So they designed their operation to collect condensation. So they built what Marcus called a rain barn so that you get dew when you have a kind of collision of warm air and hot air. Now, there's moisture in all air. It's a matter of being able to access that. So there's a tin roof that heats up, and then the cooler early morning breezes come in, and then you get water that then goes into their water tank. Now, they hadn't realized just how much water they were actually collecting until the day in January, four months after the last rainfall, when the water tank overflowed. And they were blown away, and they thought, okay, well, maybe there's something wrong with the water tank or, you know, whatever. So Marcus got up at four in the morning when the cool breezes were coming in, and he saw the water absolutely streaming into the tank. So (laughs) that was really, really quite something. And... I was impressed by the way that they thought about water. Often we're very basic. We turn on the faucet and that's water. You know, there's a lake, that's water. But there is always moisture in the air. And they talked about moisture events as opposed to how much rainfall do we get. What are the moisture events that occur and how can we make the most of it? She sent you photos of moisture events, you write. Bands of fog riding the horizon thick as smoke. Yeah, and she was very attuned to how the plants respond to different kinds of moisture events. So, yeah, and then also naturally occurring dew when when you get dew forming on plants. What they did is that they ensured that the plants would be protected from the, just by the positioning, could be protected by the sun for longer into the day. So other people that I know talk about this. So there were people that I interviewed for the book from Australia, where clearly yeah. you know, they have a lot of, it's a very dry continent, very fire prone. And so when it's dry, they're working on very fine margins in terms of wanting to make use of all of the water available. So a, actually this is another fellow whose main product is restored land, meaning that that is his mission to restore the land. And he owns this huge station. That's what they call like a ranch or, or actually they call them farms too, but a station is for livestock. They rent for is a lease for 99 years. That's what they do in Australia. That is the size of the five boroughs of New York City. So 
So he's very mindful of dew also, because the longer you can keep moisture available, that, as he says, that extra watering provides more nourishment to all of the life forms, including the microbiology, and they can stay more active. So the way that another person put it is that dew is the most important water that you get because it is the most reliable. So you can work with that. Well, Marcus's wife, Catherine, who you referred to, she also pointed out to you that cottonwood trees are indicative of dependable sources of water. And if we don't know that, you know, if we don't learn and observe and incorporate nature in all of our actions, we will be so lost. I think as you also write about our success really depends on learning from nature. And the Cottonwood story is a perfect example because they indicate there's a dependable source of water. Tell me about your experience with the Cottonwood trees. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I'm from the Northeast, so I'm not as aware of this landscape. But that apparently when it gets really, really hot, the cottonwoods actually produce water. And so we went out there on a really hot, hot, hot day. And we sat under the cottonwoods waiting to see whether they would actually produce water. But they didn't. It wasn't quite hot enough. But while sitting there, I was hearing stories about how hot it can get, like hardship chit-chat stories. And then when we got up, we realized that there were some wild burrows that were staring at us, and they wanted to get access to the water around the cottonwood trees. So, <laughs> Yeah. And that the cottonwood trees had been cut down by people who didn't realize the importance of what they were trying to teach us and what they could do because they were cut down for fuel and building, but by cutting them down, we lost we lost that wisdom that comes with them. Absolutely. This is true everywhere, in ecosystems all over the world, where something that doesn't have value, often cases like going to another place where we've had some really unsettling environmental destruction, Brazil. So a hectare of intact Amazon rainforest is worth, really has no worth in the global economy. But once it's cleared, you have all the money from the wood, and then you have the cleared land on which they can grow whatever, you know, so often soy, soy, which is a complete, it's absolutely inappropriate. It makes no sense. But in our global economy, it makes sense. And then when they milk the soil out of that, then they throw on some grass and put on some cattle. So that's what our global economy is telling people to do. But they're they're losing the wisdom of the trees. And I know, well, and everything else that the trees do for us, including help to manage the water cycle. Mm -hmm. Because those trees are putting up huge, huge volumes of moisture, moisture that moves then into other areas. So when it rains in one place, that moisture, most of it comes from 
transpiration from the upward movement of moisture through plants. And it is just it just moves through the ecosystem and is recycled. Yeah. I wish that we learned more about these ecosystems in grade school, starting in kindergarten and up, because I think to many of us, there are new kinds of systems that we might not have explored. I need to take one break, Judith, because we are more than halfway through. And I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. My guest is Judith Schwartz. She is an author, and I have two of her books with me here in the studio, Cows Save the Planet and Other Improbable Ways of Restoring Soil to Heal the Earth and Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, Building Soil, Restoring Land, and Working with the Water Cycle for a Cooler, Wetter Planet. Is there anything else that you want to say about dew in the desert? I mean, that entire chapter is absolutely mesmerizing, but I have another one also marked because it really speaks to me with regard to farming. And you had gone to visit a farm in Ohio that I want to talk about, but I want to just make sure you're finished talking about the dew and condensation. Yep, I'm good. Okay. Let's talk about John Kempf. He's in Ohio, and the title of this chapter is Farming for Water. And he is the one who really helps us understand the relationship not only of water itself, but he says it takes a soil community to feed a plant. And he really dives into the soil community and the dangers of continuous application of fungicides and pesticides and herbicides. And we think that we're doing the right thing because maybe we're saving a plant that appears to be ill from, say, a mildew or a fungal infection. And yet we're also killing the microbes in the soil that help the plants get water and get nutrients. So all of these things are connected. So tell me about your visit with John Kempf. Oh, wow. Well, it was a a beautiful landscape and also very intriguing because he doesn't use a an electric tractor or conventional tractor, but rather, as someone from the Amish community, he does this by horse and wagon, so that was memorable. Really, just his understanding, his he's a young man, I think he's still under 30, his deep inquiry about what happens in the soil and how food that we produce comes from not just like a a recipe, put these things in and the food comes out, but rather the levels of engagement that occur within the soil that produce healthy food. And he talks about plant nutrition. So it's not just that the plants are nutrition for us. In order to be nutrition for us, they need to be nourished as well. And so he points to the kinds of conditions that allow for that to happen. And that's really, really important because we often talk about crops in terms of yield. A bigger yield is better Mm. in terms of price. What can get a higher price? Mm -hmm. Or what is happening in farm country is how little can we pay you and keep you in business if barely? Mm. So, yeah, this is all really, really important because people who produce food have multiple pressures and often the pressure leads them to conclude that 
putting fertilizer and pesticides and fungicides is the right thing to do. But yeah, as a society, we have in no way reckoned on the cost of this. I mean, even fertilizer, we think fertilizer is necessary. But in the meantime, we have a problem with excess waste in industrial livestock farms. Right. Well, on a proper scale, animal agriculture produces not waste, but rather nutrition for the soil. So, yeah, that's really important. And then, oh my goodness, the, the pollinator thing. Anyway, it's, it's... It's all connected. What your books do is they allow us to be systems thinkers. And it is not the route that we typically go. And, you know, I think maybe there's more pollination, if you will, between disciplines. But mostly, you know, it's the soil scientists and you've got the weed managers and then you've got the School of Medicine and the, the Department of Nutrition. And we all have to be talking to each other and be better systems thinkers if we're going to really make an impact during this decade. Also in that farming chapter, there are two other points that you make that I hope we have time to cover. The first is this idea of water quality. It Mostly in my part of the world, in your part where you live, we deal mostly with, yeah, we might have drought, but we have a lot of deluge situations. So we have cropland that's underwater, we have more flooding, and then there's also contaminated water. So water that becomes, you talk about, say, too much hard water, where there are a lot of minerals that actually lead to the salination of soil. Again, a new concept and one that I think every eater needs to better understand that irrigation, it might look like you're going to be producing more crops, but there's a cost to it. Tell me about what you learned about that. Most Well, I think you said it very well. Again, it's more of the questions that we can ask and the importance of of understanding the context is always the entire system. So, for example, all of the pollinators and insects and little creatures, they, they all have a purpose. And what creates a healthy ecosystem is the accumulation of life. Right. And all of these life forms are generating moisture, are allowing for water to percolate into the soil. I mean, in terms of looking at the water cycle, I was looking at water and biodiversity and was understood that it made sense that the healthier the water cycle, the better for the biodiversity. But I also realized that the more diversity of life forms, the healthier the water cycle. So by just creating conditions conducive for biology, for life, plant, animal, fungi, all forms of life, some creature there is going to do what you need to do. They're all there with offering their services for us without asking for anything back except for water, air, and nutrition. But they all have functions that, in a working system, helps it all work. Mm-hmm. And the result of that is clean air, clean water, and healthy food. Mm-hmm. And I think that many times we are told that the poisons that we use 
they will affect the target organism. But you make it very clear in your book that that is not the truth, that these poisons that we apply, thinking we're doing the right thing, thinking that we're just affecting one organism, no, it affects many more beyond, I think, what we even can understand. And I th- Oh, absolutely. No, the collateral damage is, is huge. We learn about that all the time. I mean, here in Vermont, I've testified at our legislature because the people who are making the decisions, I mean, everywhere, the people who are making decisions often don't have the research. So people don't know that neonicotinoids, which is like a newfangled it's been used for a while, but it's kind of a newer, more targeted type of pesticide. And it's used in the form of seed coatings. Mm-hmm. So the idea is, oh, we're not spraying, right? you know, so it doesn't go into the air, but it's in the seed. Well, one coated seed can kill a songbird. And so the people making decisions for regulation, state rulings, etc., don't know that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Comes down to a, a question I always say of, well, what do we want? You know, as opposed to reacting against something like, oh, oh my gosh, there's this potential pathogen. We have to knock it down. Kind of step back a little. Well, when does this pathogen arise? What does that tell us about the system? How can we create conditions that this doesn't become a problem? And in terms of insects, For every one pest insect, there are 1,300 beneficial insects. So the answer to our pest problems is biodiversity, because there will be predator insects that take care of the pest. But if you're spraying things, and if you have coated seeds with insecticide, you're knocking out just the organisms that you want. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, getting back to water, and we are running out of time, which is terrible because there are so many notes in your book that I wanted to touch on. But I do think that questioning the role of, we're told, give up meat, it's better for the planet. But I think that it's more important, and you make it clear in your book, that we consider how we're raising livestock, not going with the industrial system, but using animals as the way they were intended to be part of our larger ecosystem. And I also want to mention very quickly that you speak about the power of permaculture and how we can change the weather simply by changing the way the land is used. And if any book could leave us with hope, I think it's Water in Plain Sight. Well, I appreciate it. And it was a joy to write, although, you know, as you mentioned, it can be frustrating that our narratives don't always give us room to look at such things as the water cycle because it's in plain sight. It's there. Mm -hmm. So it always strikes me that we talk about the connection between climate change and water. We only look at, oh, this weather event may be a result of climate change, but we don't talk about water's effect on climate. Exactly. That's where we have so much agency. Mm. And that's why your book is so important. And I have to just cut off our conversation because we're out of time. But in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hamilgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. 
Most of all, I want to thank Judith Schwartz for Water in Plain Sight, Hope for a Thirsty World, Building Soil, Restoring Land, and Working with the Water Cycle for a Cooler, Wetter Planet. Judith Schwartz, I will provide a link to your book on our website to lead people to this book. I think it's really important for us to extend our awareness of how critical water is in the whole system. Thank you. Well, thank you so much.